Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Michael, for those that uh, don't know me. We're going to be taking a look at that bit of uh, the letter to the Philippians that Scott read earlier. Um, so if you close that, you might want to uh, reopen it just to take a look at it in a moment. Um, it's Philippians chapter 3, um, starting at verse 15. It's on page 1180 of the, the Bibles that are out on the tables. Um, now, I saw a video a while ago um, that I found really funny. I'm now going to attempt to explain it, which often doesn't, uh, <laughs> then it, it loses the humor, but I'll give it a go. So um, there was this, it was like a couple, like a, um, a youngish couple. It was Australian. I won't attempt to do the accent. And the guy was sort of sitting on the couch, like um, watching the TV, and the place was a total mess. There was like cans, crisp packets, plates everywhere. The kitchen was trashed, like every utensil, and that was out. Um, and his wife comes in, and she's obviously just got back from work, like she's dressed like in, in sort of clothes. It looks like she's been at day at work, and she comes in, she looks around, and she's like, look, I'm sick of this. Ever since we moved into this new house, um, I've done everything. You haven't moved a muscle to keep the place clean and, and tidy. I'm doing everything. And he looks, and he's like, look, look, babe, sit down, sit down. He's like, look, I can tell you're stressed. And she's like, look, you're right, I'm stressed. Because um, I've been to work all day, and you haven't done anything to tidy up this place. And he's like, look, I, I can tell you're upset. Um, I, I, I'm going to let you in on something. And she's like, well, just looks at him, and he's like, look, look. Um, it's going to sound weird, um, but um, I'm going to let you in on something. Since we moved to this new house, I couldn't believe it at first. It's going to sound crazy. I couldn't believe it myself at first. But I've, I've confirmed it, and it's definitely happening. She's like, what on earth are you going on about? And he's like, look, I've noticed that you were often like putting plates and, and glasses away and stuff like that. You'll be able to save all that time. She's like, what on earth are you going on about? He's like, well, I've just noticed. He's like, it's going to sound crazy, but I just leave this stuff here. And then if I'd leave it overnight, I'd get up the next morning and I'd just open the dishwasher and it's all in there clean. I just can't believe it. And she looks at him and he's like, I know, I told you it was going to sound crazy. Um, and I've seen you loading it so you can save all that time because I just leave it here. And it's ever since we moved to this new house. I can't, don't ask me to explain it. I can't explain it. Um, but it, that, it happens. It works every time. And she just looks at him like disgusted. And she's like, are you, are you serious? And he's like, wait till I tell you about the washing machine. Um, and the reason why I found that funny is because it sort of picks up on that sort of Classic stereotype of like the lazy uh, husband and the, the wife doing everything. Uh, but you might look at that and, and say that um, he is demonstrating a lack of maturity. He's not thinking about uh, how these things get cleaned. He's just saying, oh, like, they, they've, uh, they've cleaned themselves. He's not thinking, oh, somebody's had to do that. And I was laughing about that and then I was thinking, well, actually, as, um, like, as a child or even as a teen or teenager, um, when I was living with my parents, I didn't give much thought to how things happen in the house. Like food sort of appeared in the cupboards and in the fridge, like my clothes got washed, um, like bills got paid and stuff like that. I never gave it a second thought. And like maybe at that age, I should have been starting to think about that. But if I was thinking like that now, we'd probably think there was a problem. If I said, well, you know, like, I just never think about the electricity and gas bills and like, how they get paid or never think about where food's going to come from, I just sort of wait. You'd think, oh, that's a bit of a problem. Like, you, you've got a responsibility. That's irresponsible like, to, to not be uh, working together with Lisa, my wife, to, to, to provide for our children. Think about that's going to happen. That level of mature, immaturity, we would think it's gone beyond like, a, a joke and it, it's become a problem. Um, I find myself saying all that, like, I'm a teacher, um, I teach um, 11 to 16-year-old kids, I find myself all the time describing things as immature. 
and saying, look, I would expect a greater level of maturity from this class, which is one of those classic things that like, teachers say and has zero effect, but I'm, I'm still saying it. Um, and we recognize that there's a natural maturing, a maturity, growing development. Uh, all of us at one point, we were unable to like, feed ourselves, we were unable to look after ourselves, we needed other people to do that for us. If I, was, if I needed somebody to feed me now at this age, we think, oh, something's gone wrong um, along the way somewhere. Um, it's not just about physical things, but it's how we think. Um, and so, like, again, with a, with a young, like a baby or um, a young child, the basic thought process is, I want something, I haven't got it, therefore I cry and scream until it appears. Now, that's fine at a time, um, but if I was doing that now, if I, like last night I found myself sitting at the table, wanted a drink, my glass was empty, I didn't just go, ah, until like, a, 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 like water appeared in my glass, like, I went and got it myself. And so if I was doing that, we'd think, yeah, there's a problem there, there's a, uh, that lack of maturity is, is a problem. Now, Paul starts this section by talking about um, like a mature way of thinking, and that's what me, uh, got me thinking about um, maturity and, and what that means. Um, he's going to say a lot about how we think, um, what our mindset is, what our mind like, is set on, um, what our attention is set on, how we think about things. He talks about a lot, that a lot in this section. What you think about um, is very important, and the Bible has a lot to say about the mind um, and your mindset. We're told to love God with all our mind. The mind's like a key battleground in your life. In Romans 8, Paul contrasts the mindset on the flesh with the mindset on the spirit. In Romans 12, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Ephesians, he says, we should be made new in the attitudes of our minds. In this section, he's going to talk about the difference of having your mind set on earthly things versus your mind set on Jesus. He's going to try and resolve a conflict by asking the people to have the same mindset as each other. In chapter 2 of this letter, he talked about having unity through being like-minded and having the same mindset as Jesus. In chapter 4, he's going to talk about Jesus guarding your mind. The mind is important here. It's an important uh, part of what Paul's saying. And so take a look at, at verse 15. It says, all of us then who are mature should take a view, such a view of these things. He's talking like people who are mature as Christians, spiritually mature, should think in this way about these things. What are these things? Well, he's referring back to what he's just said. Just look with me at um, the top of the page there, uh, verse 12 onwards. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards a goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. What Paul's referring to as a mature view, a mature way of thinking, a mature mindset, is someone who's looking uh, towards God, what God's got for them in the future. They're pressing on towards that. Pressing on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Maturity and growth and development, that pressing on, that, that growth, that maturity, is how life works, as we said, but it's also how the Christian life works. We shouldn't be stagnant or static. I think that Christian immaturity can be a big problem. It's a, a problem in the church like at large around the world today. There's many, many people who have like a loose association with church and maybe generally think positively about Jesus. 
but there's no development or growth. And that results in like really shallow roots. It results in less stability when storms and difficulties come. We've thought already today about like holding on to truths about God and how that helps you uh, through suffering and through difficulties. That's a growth in maturity to know those truths, to learn them, to cling on to them, to test, to test them and, and find that they are true. And without that, we find ourselves just unstable when those difficulties come. In the rest of uh, verse 15, he says, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. It sounds a bit like passive-aggressive at first, like if you think differently to me, God's going to change your mind sort of thing. But I think what he's talking about here is the fact that it's God who um, causes that growth in maturity, that development. When did God last change your mind on something? Like if you think exactly the same things about God now as you always have done, then it may not be the real God. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a massive change. I thought God was evil. Now I think he's good. Like that might have been a change that happened in your life at some point. But it's more God revealing different aspects of his character. Or you come to understand in a deeper way um, something about him that you hadn't done before. Maturity involves growth and development in our understanding of who God is and what he's done. Now, the talk about growth here and maturity, I'm aware that people can sometimes hear that as like pressure. Like you should be growing. You should be developing all the time. You should be maturing. I don't want somebody pressurizing me constantly about how I'm growing. How have I grown in the last month or year or whatever? But when we slip into that way of thinking, we're thinking about being as if being a Christian is like a job where you've got like a performance review that you've got to meet certain targets and then move on. That's not what being a Christian is like. It's more like a relationship. And so the call to Christian maturity and growth is a call to grow deeper in that relationship with Jesus and become more like him. It's something that we'll desire when we understand what that is. So think about marriage, for example. Um, the sort of wedding vows that many people say make very serious promises, like you're promising to uh, commit to each other in sickness and in health and, and, and that sort of thing. That's like really serious, weighty promises. You're not making those because you have to. That is what you want to do at that time. You want to commit everything to that person. It's not you think, oh, yeah, there's pressure. I've got to do this. That's what you're wanting to do. You want to commit everything to that person. Person. No one's saying as they get married, well, unfortunately, I think this relationship will have to grow and, and develop in the future. It's going to have to become more mature, I suppose. Like, nobody's doing that. That's exactly what you want to do. You're standing there getting married, like looking forward to the growth of that relationship, looking forward to that relationship developing. Like that's the, the dream of looking into the future and thinking, oh, the relationship's going to be even better than it is now. That's the call to Christian maturity as well. It's like, oh, what, have you, what are you doing to grow this afternoon? It's an invitation to grow in our relationship with Jesus, an invitation to go deeper into joy in him. The call that Paul's making to press on towards that goal, to grow, to mature, is a call towards joy. It's to press on to greater joy, to grow in joy, to mature in joy. And so one of the ways that I think that we grow in that maturity is following the example of others, and that's what Paul says next. If you go to verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. 
Paul says that the Philippians, Philippian Christians should follow his example um, and others who live in a similar way as Paul, um, other mature Christians, they should uh, follow their example, their model. By following the example of Paul and other believers, he thinks that the people he was writing to were going to grow and mature and become more like Jesus. Now, I think we really shy away from this idea of following other people's examples. In, in like British Christianity, I think this is something that we tend to shy away from, possibly for a number of different reasons. I was just trying to think, why do we shy, shy away from this idea? I think one of them is pride. Let's be honest, one of them is pride. So I might notice something that is admirable about somebody else, but then straight away my pride flares up. And then, well, I'm not going to follow that person's example because I, I don't like the way they do something else. Or it might be comparison. We're aware that comparison is dangerous and we don't want to get into the thing of thinking that we're better than some people or worse than some people. And so we end up then just shying away from looking at their example and seeing what there is to emulate at all. Or it could even be shame, just thinking, well, I'm not a good enough person. I could never be like that person. But whatever it is, I think we sometimes back off this idea of looking at others um, and following their example. Paul doesn't have that problem at all. He talks about this sort of thing all the time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, I urge you to imitate me. Later in the same letter, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul has no problem saying, look, I'm, I'm trying to imitate God. I'm trying to be like God. You, you should try and be like me. And so I think we can, we can free ourselves up to do that, to look around um, to other Christians we know and to follow their example. And it will free us up to understand like, what it's not. So it's not saying that that person who you were looking to their example and looking to follow their example is perfect. Obviously they're not. You can definitely learn from people who get other things wrong. Like If you couldn't, then we'd never learn anything from anyone because we're all getting stuff wrong. It's not saying that you've got to copy um, exactly what that person is like. I really um, admire this person, seems to have a vibrant prayer life, and I want to try and follow their example. That's a, a good idea. It doesn't mean I say, right, okay, I have to wear the same sort of clothes that they do. I've got to start eating the same things that they do. Like, it, it's not saying that you're going to be copying everything that they do. People have different personalities, and that's fine. People have different strengths and weaknesses in different areas. We're not saying you're having to model your whole life on what that person does. It's not saying that that person is a better person than you or that there's somebody worse than you. It's not a comparison. We're all on level ground before the cross. And it's not, it sounds arrogant of, of Paul to say this. I certainly wouldn't dare get up and say, oh, well, just start imitating me. And that's it. Like, it's not arrogant of Paul to say this. It, he sees it as he's somebody who's discovered gold and he's telling you, like, follow me, like, imitate me, follow my example. I'll show you where to find it. Other people help us grow, and one of the ways that they help us grow is by us observing how they live, what they say, what they do, and then us thinking, yeah, that's an example I want to follow. Now, that thing of following an example and being shaped by the example of others, I believe, happens whether you think it does or not. So I know, like, the, the classroom that I teach in is on the first floor of the building. It looks out over one of the schoolyards. And so the other day, a couple of weeks ago, I was tidying something up during break time, happened to look out, and somebody's jacket caught my eye because it looked like 
somebody had walked into the yard from the 1990s. So they were wearing like a jacket, um, like a, not a full shell suit type jacket, but it was that style of thing. And it was the color scheme that stood out to me. So it was mainly like a light gray with a, like a massive pink sort of square patch on one shoulder. And then there was a blue square down here and like yellow lines. I'm pretty sure I had wallpaper like this, like when I was a teenager in the, in the 90s. Um, and I just thought, man, like, yeah, the 90s are definitely coming back if somebody's like walking around like wearing that jacket and then never thought anything about it until a week later I looked out and I saw that this lad, that the lad who was wearing it, like he's a bit of a poser and, and he's a popular sort of lad. Um, and there was now four or five people wearing that jacket in this little group. Um, and since then, I've seen others around the school. And I'm sure, well, maybe some of them did think, oh, I've seen Jaden's jacket. I'm going to go and get one exactly like that. A lot of the times, that sort of thing just happens without us realizing. You see a jacket in the shop, and you thought, oh, like, I like that, and you're not realizing, oh, that's because I've seen a few other people, I thought it looked good, and therefore I want it. That's probably how he got it in the first place. What I'm saying is, we, we do this, we follow people's examples a lot of the time subconsciously. We pick up speech from the way people speak. We pick up ideas from the ideas of the people who we're exposed to. We pick up ways of doing things or ways of interacting with people. I know that we like to think of ourselves as an island, like I'm the true individual. Other people might like follow the crowd. I'm the true individual. But we, we're all massively shaped by the people who we've spent time with, especially people who we admire. And so if it's going to happen whether we want it to or not, then it's essential that we think about it carefully and direct our attention to good examples that we want to follow. Now, I believe you can learn from, from anyone but Paul is specifically here talking about learning from himself, learning from mature believers. In general, people who've been following Jesus longer than you are probably going to have something you can learn from, learn from them. That's not necessarily automatic, um, but we want to look at the fruit of the lives of people who we know and, and look for people who are bearing good fruit, who have something admirable, admirable about them that we can follow that example. Look for people who find joy in Jesus rather than the counterfeits that the world offers and then follow their example, learn from them. So I could grow from following Scott's example of like being passionate for always like sharing the gospel with non-Christians. I can grow from following Ben's example of really sacrificially using his time in hospitality with other people. I can grow from following John and Sylvia's example of encouragement. I did actually write down extreme encouragement in my notes, so let's just say that again. John and Sylvia's example of extreme encouragement at all times. I can grow from following Ian and Nadine's example of raising kids into adults who are like, functioning well in society and love Jesus. I can learn by observing those people. I could learn by asking them about it. I could say, oh, I notice like, you, I, I really struggle with reading the Bible. You seem to find a lot of joy in it. Like, how did you get going with it? Or I'm not, I, I just find it really difficult to pray. Um, you seem to like, really enjoy praying. Like, what, like, how did you get started on that? Or have you always been like that? Or how have you developed that? You can ask them about it. I'm not saying those people are perfect. I, I could go around everybody in this room and, and, and say uh, what I could learn from people. I'm not saying that any of those people are perfect. They wouldn't say that. I'm not entirely, I'm not saying I need to become entirely like them. Scott and Ben both have beards. I'm not going to be growing a beard. I can't grow a beard. I'm not saying that they're better people than me. Like, we're, we're all sinful before God. We're all loved by God. 
What I am saying is that I can see God's work in areas of other people's lives and God can use the, their example to help me grow in those areas. I don't want to be held back with pride, thinking, oh, no, nobody can teach me anything. I don't want to be held back by comparison, thinking, oh, who's better and worse? I just want to learn from uh, people who are uh, following Jesus and uh, can help me do the same. I want to be proactive rather than just letting that happen by default. So Paul goes on to talk about like two different like categories of people here. And this is what we want to think about is like, if you think who whose example do I want to follow? We want to follow one of these categories and, and not the other. So in verse 18 he says, For I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Like, that's the category we don't want to be following for their example, just in case that wasn't clear. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You know, the person Paul describes as an enemy of the cross of Christ is described as headed to destruction. They're led by their, just their desires and appetites, they're finding shame when, they, when, when they're looking for glory. Whereas the other type of person is described as a citizen of heaven who is eagerly awaiting Jesus' return. Rather than have their minds set on earthly things, they've got their minds set on Jesus and his return. It's coming back to that like sort of growth in maturity and, and uh, what our mind is set on. Is your mind going to be set on earthly things or is your mind going to be set on Jesus' return? Like Jesus became human, he was born, he lived a perfect life, he died on our behalf, and he was physically resurrected. Where is he now? Well, the Bible tells us that he's at the right hand of God the Father, which could be described as being in heaven. But that has difficulties for us, that language, because we picture certain things. He's certainly not like a disembodied force, like floating around up in the sky. There's loads of stuff that we can't say for certain what it is like and where exactly Jesus is now. But there is something that the Bible makes 100% clear that he is coming back. He will return. He said that, the people who, who wrote following uh, that, um, his message and following his ascension made that clear. He will return. We don't know when, makes it that, that very clear as well. Nobody knows when, but he is coming back. And I just found myself, uh, when I was reading this, just thinking, how often am I reflecting on Jesus' return? How often are you reflecting on Jesus' return? Paul says here that um, the, the sort of mature Christian is eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. Am I eagerly anticipating Jesus' return? Paul highlights a few things about this type of person who has their mind set on Jesus' return. Firstly, he describes them um, as a citizen of heaven. That's where our citizenship is. Um, we belong to a different kingdom. We're living in, in this world, but we belong to Jesus and his kingdom. Our ultimate allegiance is to another king. Now, I was fortunate enough to go on holiday to the USA recently. I really like the country. I respect the laws of the country. I wanted to be a good visitor to the country. I was excited when I arrived at the airport, but I'm a British citizen. I walked past the American flag. I wasn't swelling with pride. I wasn't pledging allegiance to it. No offense, Andrew. Um, the, like, I liked it, but I'm, I'm not from there. I'm a foreigner there. 
Like, I enjoyed it. There's loads of good things about it, but I'm a British citizen. To give a different example, I like rugby, and I'll watch pretty much any match, whether I, I like the teams involved or not. And the boys have picked up on that when different countries are playing that aren't England, I'll often be supporting one country or the other, and that can change because I've got a complex rule of, like, like system of who I'll support. So it can be roughly summarised as anybody against Scotland, unless Scotland are playing Wales. Um, but it's more complicated than that, but it's not worth me spending the time to go into the, the details. But that sort of supporting is nothing like when I'm watching England, where I'm supporting them with something from deep within. The other one is, like, I would prefer Scotland to win, to win the match against Wales. That's not how I feel when I'm watching England playing Scotland or Wales or anybody. I don't know whether those two examples <laughs> have helped, but that's what I think of when I think of being a citizen of heaven. I'm here, you know what I mean? I'm in the USA, but I'm a, I'm a British citizen. The thing that's most true about me isn't where I physically am now. Like, I'm watching this other match, but really, where my heart is, is, is with the England match. Maybe they won't help you at all, but we, 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 we're citizens of God's kingdom. We're here, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We do not belong to the world, we belong to Jesus. We're living in the world, but it doesn't have a claim on you. It can't, like, dominate you. You're citizens of Jesus. And so when Jesus returns, he's going to claim you as his own. Paul also says that when he returns, we're going to see the power that he has to bring everything under his control. When Jesus returns, we're going to live with him for eternity in a new creation. In a physical world that's got everything put right. No more sin, no more pain, no tears, no death. His power is going to be fully evident when he returns and creates that world that we all long for. The example that Paul actually gives of what he's going to do with his power is maybe a bit surprising because he doesn't say those things that I've just said, which are true, but he uses the example of he's going to use that power to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. We're going to become like him. Like your body's no longer going to experience pain and decay. You're going to become like Jesus in every way. You're going to be glorified. That's a true glory, where, whereas the person whose mind's set on earthly things is looking for glory, but actually it's, it's shame, is what Paul says. Whereas the person with a mind set on Jesus' return is waiting for glory, and that's true glory when it comes. So that's why we eagerly await Jesus' return. It doesn't mean that we're not doing anything while we wait. It doesn't mean that uh, we can't enjoy the, the world that God's given us while we wait. Those things are both true. But it does mean that we're looking forward to his return because that will be the glorious culmination of God's plan for us and for the world. We can truly say with like 100% confidence that the best is yet to come. There's been some occasions that I can think of when people have described things to me uh, that have happened in their life that's been so like awful that I, when it's come time to pray that I, I don't know what to pray other than to like ask Jesus to return and like and long for the day when he comes back and stuff like that won't happen anymore. And so I would encourage you that when you experience pain and suffering, conflict, whatever it is, use those things to remind you that Jesus is going to return. Use those things to help you to eagerly anticipate Jesus' return because one day those things won't happen anymore. One day Jesus is going to come back, everything is going to be under his power, and situations like that won't, won't be anything that are experienced. 
There's also some occasions in life where I find myself thinking, this is just an absolutely brilliant moment. I want to like, try and like, experience it and enjoy it. And we can use occasions like that as well to help us to reflect on Jesus' return. When I experience joy, I can think it can be reminded that I'm a citizen of heaven. And these things that I just find immensely enjoyable now are just a glimpse of, of what's to come when Jesus returns. That's the mature mindset that um, Paul describes. The immature mindset is set on earthly things, looking for joy in the things of the earth and not finding it, looking for glory there and finding shame, just following, like reacting, just following the appetites. It says that God is their stomach. Whereas the mature mindset is using everything we experience here, good or, good or bad, to remind us that Jesus is returning, returning in the glorious truth of what that will be like when we're living with him. And so I probably would have liked to like end my section there because that's, I think that's absolutely brilliant, like reflecting on Jesus' return. But I've got to look at the next few verses of uh, chapter 4. And so after thinking about the glorious return of Jesus, we're citizens of heaven, and what it's going to be like when his power is revealed when he returns. And we're setting our minds on that, and it's just, it's amazing. We then, like, come right back down to earth with a bit of conflict in the church. Like, that'll knock you flat in seconds. It'll knock me flat in seconds. I'm sure other people have shared my experience of that in the past. That anything, I could have been rejoicing in something about Jesus done, and then you come across conflict in the church, and it just takes the wind right out of you. And so... In um, verse, sorry, chapter 4, it says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Brilliant. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. The mind that's not set on earthly things, but is set on being citizens of heaven and, and set on Jesus' return, is not a mind that's detached from reality. That's what Paul, Paul's shown us here by going straight from uh, that to, to these women who he's talking about. These are real people in a real situation. Paul expects the mindset that's set on Jesus and his return to make a difference in this very like real gritty situation. There's these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, that appear to be in some sort of conflict. We don't know what it is. And Paul sees the solution. He, he urges them, he pleads with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. So if they can have minds set on Jesus, being citizens of heaven, being set on Jesus in his return, that's what's going to help them resolve this conflict. This doesn't seem to be a conflict that involves false teaching because he doesn't like say particularly that one of them's wrong. Like we know he's not shy from the start of chapter three of calling people dogs if he thinks they're, they're teaching something that's against the gospel. So it doesn't seem to be that. Um, and Paul seems to talk about them as, as friends. It's unusual for Paul to name people within the body of the letter. He, he quite often names people sort of in final greetings or whatever. It's unusual for him to name people as he does here. Um, and he makes a point of saying that these two women have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. These are friends of Paul's, are people in the church, active in the church, that are having some sort of conflict. A mind set on Jesus and his return, a mind set on the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, not on the earth, will 
that'll put personal conflicts like this in a different perspective. Seemingly irreconcilable differences can be reconciled because of the ultimate reconciliation that took place on the cross. A mindset that sees others in the church as fellow citizens of heaven is to be able to resolve conflict far easier than a mindset on earthly resources where we're in competition for them. A mindset on Jesus sees others in the church in the same way that Paul describes them in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, people who he loves and longs for, people who his joy and his crown, his dear friends. The mindset on Jesus and his kingdom sees others in the church as those things, not as rivals, not as enemies, not as competition. These two women are both citizens of heaven. And that means there's hope for them to resolve the same conflict. They just need to be of the same mind. The same mind as Christ Jesus, as he talked about in chapter 2. They just need to remember who they are. Just remember what kingdom they're in. And when their minds come off the earthly things to um, being citizens of heaven, that's going to help them to get to the root of their conflict. Paul says that along with you, Odia and Syntyche, there's somebody who he calls his true companion, we don't know who that is, and, and somebody called Clement and other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the, 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 that's another way of saying that they're citizens of heaven. You know, their names are in Jesus' book. Like if Jesus got a list of who are the citizens of his kingdom, well, it's this book of life and, and their names are in it. When there's conflict to resolve, when you have conflict to resolve, there might be loads of different things that are necessary. Or repentance, forgiveness, all of that might be necessary. But crucial to all of that is remembering that you are citizens of heaven. Your name is written in the book of life and so is that other person. A mind that's not set on the things of the earth but on your citizenship in God's eternal kingdom. An eager anticipation of Jesus' return will help you care more about other people, not less. Now, we're pretty much finished here, but I've talked about a load of stuff there to do. So if you just go away and do that, then we'll all be sorted for next week. We'll be a much better place. Just be a bit more mature, like follow the example of people who are doing better than you and keep your mind set on Jesus. Like you'll have no, you'll have no trouble. It's important to remember that doing all of those things, so setting your, having the, your mind set on the right thing, working to grow in maturity, following the right examples, relating to other people well, none of those things make us righteous before God. We read about that in, in chapter 3, earlier in chapter 3, uh, last week. Paul says that those things, all those good things, are like garbage when it comes to righteousness before God. We receive righteousness by faith, by trusting in Jesus and his righteousness. We trust in that he's paid for our sins and gives us his righteousness. We receive it. It's not by doing the right thing that earns it. We receive it. And that's the foundation for living like the, the life that I've described, the life that's growing in, in maturity. It's not the criteria for that life. It's the foundation for it. Paul is saying to these people, not do these things to get your name in the book of life. You order and syntyche, sort this out, be the same mindset, and then your name can get back in the book of life. He's saying that their names are written in the book of life. In verse 16, I, I forgot to read it earlier on, he says, let us live up to what we have already attained. We've already received righteousness from Jesus. Now, we, now these lifestyles of increasing maturity go out from that. 
We are citizens of heaven. We're not doing these things to get our way onto that citizenship list. I joked earlier about Andrew pledging allegiance to the flag, but he became an American citizen a while ago, a few years ago, and had to do a test. I think that's right, yeah. Had to do a test like, and learn things and like, pass that test. He couldn't just like, become a citizen without having proved that he, he, he knew, had this knowledge and he was willing to do that sort of thing. That's not what these things are here. He's saying you are citizens of heaven, not how to become one. We receive our citizenship. By trusting in Jesus. And now he's saying, this is how citizens live. Your name is in, if, if you're a Christian, your name is in that book of life. Whether you're clearing up and resolving conflict or whether you're the one causing it, your name is in the book of life. So you can receive Jesus' righteousness and then from there, go out and pursue peace. Your name is in the book of life whether you're mature in the faith or a baby. Even if you've been a, like a baby Christian for years and years and you haven't been maturing, your name's in the book of life because you receive that from Jesus. So receive that righteousness and then pursue him. You're free to grow in that relationship. Your name's in the, the book of life whether you've actively followed good examples or you, whether you've passively followed bad ones. So you just receive that righteousness of Jesus. Then just go out and imitate others who imitate Christ so you can grow in that. He's going to return in power to transform your lowly body into a glorious one. At that stage, there'll be no more examples to follow, no more growing or maturing to be done, no more conflict to be resolved. And so Paul says, like, until that happens, let's fix our mind on him. Let's grow in joy, grow in maturity of joy. Let's grow in our joy of him. So you might be here this afternoon, you're not somebody who's a Christian, you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. You can receive that from Jesus like now, like today. Your name can be written into that book of life. You can become a citizen of heaven. You don't have to like, present a, a CV or a list of the things that you've done for it. You just need to repent of your, your sin and put your trust in Jesus um, for righteousness, not in your own um, works and efforts. And then if you hear you this afternoon as a Christian, then let's just live our lives remembering that your names are in that book and look forward with eager anticipation towards Jesus' return. Let, let's pray and we'll finish. Lord Jesus, we thank you that... We thank you that um, no matter like our performance, no matter the, the good or the bad things that we've done or haven't done, that we all stand before you like on, on even ground. We don't deserve anything from you, but you give us forgiveness for our sins and you clothe us in your righteousness. I thank you that you write our names in your book of life, that we are citizens of heaven, citizens of your kingdom. We belong to you, you are our king. And we know that one day you're going to return and we'll experience that kingdom in its fullness. And so help us to remember that, Lord, because remembering that, remembering where our citizenship is, remembering your return, helps us to, to live our lives now because we're not looking for, for glory in the things of this earth. We're not fixing our minds on the things of the earth and, and looking there. We're looking towards you and anticipating the glory, the true glory that you'll bring.
It'll help us to resolve conflict, Lord, when we remember each other as fellow citizens of heaven, fellow people with names written in, in your book. And so as we remember that, Lord, we ask us to um, grow us in maturity in our relationship with you. We want to know more of you. We want to know more of who you are. We want to experience more of your character and your love for us. We want to enjoy you more, Lord. That's the, that's the maturity that we desire. And we pray that you would be at work in us to, to, to grow that in us, to, to grow that relationship, to, to bring us to increase in maturity. We thank you that one of the ways that you provide for us to grow like that is by putting other people around us in the church, other Christians in our lives, who we can imitate them as they imitate you. We can learn from them. So would you protect us against pride that stops us from um, following the example, the good examples that we see around us? And would you use us in each other's lives within Grace Church and other Christians that we know further afield so that we can support each other and help each other grow in that enjoyment of you? Amen.